All right, hockey fans, welcome into episode 284 of the Natural Hattrick Podcast. We will get uh, into the playoffs and the news around the NHL in just a moment, but uh, certainly a sad day in the hockey world this morning as we record this. So I'm going to let Craig start things off with, uh, with you know, sort of some serious news, and um, and we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people who know this uh, hockey community, well, the Coyote community alone will know who Tommy Curvers was, um, served in a number of capacities with the team, both in radio and then as a scout and, and uh, director of player personnel, I was with the Minnesota Wild most recently. Uh, he's had a two and a half battle year battle with cancer, and he uh, died this morning, Monday morning. Um, there's an excellent piece up on the Athletic um, from Mike Rousseau about him. Mike knew him really well. Todd Walsh locally knew him really well. Was very close, and I know this touched him. And one of the guys that knew him best of all is is sitting uh, alongside us on this podcast, Steve Peters, who worked with him in a number of capacities. So I'm just going to yield the floor, Steve, and, and let you talk. Yeah, you know this is a hard day, and and um, I know I, I, people listening, and you're looking for hockey playoff news, and, and you know the expansion draft, and who's getting traded, and and this just puts all of that into perspective because it, you know it, it's the thread that binds us together this game of hockey um but it's the people that matter and um i've known tom curvers um i met him in my 20s i'm from minnesota as well and he was in a you know an elite high school player and college player there played one of the best college games ever played university of minnesota duluth four overtime game against bowling green he lost but he wore that as a badge of honor um he he's a special person and i know you hear that maybe a little cliche about guys but but tom's one of those guys that hockey was important but family and people always came first and and the two things that struck me about tom curvers was was in a draft several years ago in dallas and i ran into tom and he was with minnesota at the time and i was still with the coyotes at the time and it was it was it was just talking about hockey and i i stopped and i said you know what tom I just want to work somewhere where it's good people from top to bottom, from the general manager to the guy that drives the Zamboni. And, and Tom, you'd be one of those guys. And that's just kind of the personality he had. Um, and, and the other thing that strikes me, he, he traveled a lot around the state of Minnesota. And my dad was a college coach at Bemidji State for years and years. And, you know, my dad's time has passed and he's in the press box watching games. But every single time Tom Curvers went to a Bemidji State hockey game, he stopped and had time for my mom and dad. And it wasn't just to be nice and say hello. He was a genuine person and cared and asked questions and talked to him. And that's the part of Tom Kermers that I'm going to miss um, is the person. And I, I was lucky enough to, to have an opportunity to talk to him recently. And we didn't talk about his treatment. We didn't talk about his illness. We talked about hockey. And that's what he wanted to talk about. And that gave him a little spark that day because he wanted to talk about the trades and he wanted to talk about the playoffs and he wanted to talk about the thing that was, I said earlier, binds us all as, as hockey fans. It truly is a small world. Um, the people that are in the hockey community um, and the hockey world is a little bit less without Tom Curvers in it today. Thanks. Yeah, I think your your point uh, on the hockey community and the good people within it is very well taken. I think most people involved with the sport on any level, whether you're as a fan or a player or a coach or media or just around the game, whatever that that is that is one of the best things about the sport is and I, and you know every sport I guess has it to a certain extent, but specifically uh, with with hockey, there is that sort of like oh you like hockey, all right, then then we're already friends. You know what I mean? Like you kind of just everybody kind of knows each other, 
especially when you get away from like, you know, Canada or Boston, you know, and you get out here towards Arizona where it's like, it's almost like a, a separate little club. So yeah, uh, just, uh, there's, there's no easy way to transition out of that, but I'm glad we, uh, we got to open with that. And, um, I guess guys, let's, let's go to just news around the NHL before we get into the playoffs because the Rangers have a coach. There are still a few coaching vacancies available. We have Buffalo, Seattle, and of course, Arizona. Uh, it seemed inevitable that Gerard Gallant was going to get a job somewhere. I think, I mean, anytime, anytime a team loses a coach, fires a coach, or that coach leaves or whatever, Gallant's name seems to be the first one to come up. And I was always fascinated by the possibility of him going to Seattle and, you know, coaching another expansion team from year one. But I totally get why that's not the case. And, I, and if I was him, I don't know that I would have. I don't, you know, if he takes the job with the Rangers and the Rangers are loaded. But I don't know that I'd want to go start another team if I was Gerard Gallant because I just started a team in Vegas and he was part of the, the team that set the bar so high. So it, it makes sense for him to go to New York if that was an option for him. Yeah, and, and then I might add, in Vegas, got dumped because of a personality clash with Kelly yeah. McCurdy, which is which is too bad. Um, I've had some people suggest to me that Gallant is the perfect hire for this team at their point at this point in their progression, and I don't know that I have as much insight as others on that, and and as you maybe, Petey, because you've been an NHL coach. Um, a couple of things that stood out before uh, for me before we get into that though. The 3.5 million price tag. I mean, we've seen some bigger deals, obviously, in the past for guys like Elaine Vigneault, for Dave Tippett, for, for Joel Quenville. Um, I, I wonder how much of this is because of COVID that we saw the market driven down. Uh, I was talking to Pierre Lebrun about this and he said, Hey, it's actually a big deal that he got the fourth year because a lot of guys are just signing three year deals right now. But 3.5 million is clearly a lot lower than those coaches I mentioned, some of whom got those deals quite a while ago. So we're seeing some of the impact of COVID right now on the coaching market. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a trend, not just in the, in the head coaching, but the entire NHL staffs and even sure. players to some extent. I mean, you, you look at what a hit these owners took over the last year um, and you understand it. And I think when you watch the process of how these coaches get hired, man, these, you know, you see, you wait for those dominoes to fall and these jobs are gone quick and once they're gone you have to wait a whole nother cycle i mean w whether that cycle is in november or december but you know sometimes that cycle might not be until next season so not surprised to see him sign for 3.5 that's still a really good paycheck for gerard gallant he is an outstanding person i had the opportunity to work with him at the world cup of hockey um, I know it was a short period of time, but he's a guy that really believes in his players. He's a player's coach. He gets everybody on the same page, and he, he, he's that guy that can say the right thing at the right time to motivate the guys through. Is he the guy that's going to draw up the game-winning play with a minute to go with his X's and O's? You know, probably not. Um, but he's smart enough to surround himself with the people that can. Um, he will be a different personality than David Quinn. And I think Quinn clashed with some of the players there in New York. This will be a, a much different locker room with the New York Rangers with Gerard Gallant behind the bench than it was with David Quinn. Um, they are the closest team to winning of the teams that are replacing coaches this year. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of a start he can get there um, with the Rangers. It is an interesting point, though, too, Craig, because when you're talking about the Rangers hiring a coach, so if anybody could afford to or would pay for a coach, it would it would be the team in New York. You know, not the successful team in New York on Long Island, but the other team that's that's on the way up. 
<laughs> and uh, and yeah, again, like three point five million is not it's not nothing, but uh, but it does maybe signify this is not the best time to be trying to get a paycheck uh, as a head coach. Now, sticking with that theme, you've got the Coyotes who still need a coach. Uh, you've got their former coach who's still out there potential. I mean, there's been he's been linked to Seattle for a while, really. Uh, but he at the moment is Seattle doesn't have a coach. Buffalo doesn't have a coach either. So that's sort of the coaching carousel at this point. I, I can't imagine much else would change with the, the final four teams that are still in the playoffs. They're not going to be looking for coaches. Yeah, it looks like those are the only two jobs that are available. So it's just it, it's interesting to me that that we're waiting on Seattle's decision. You know, there have been obviously reports of a third meeting for Rick Tockett at this point. So what's the delay? I had I had a source tell me that they're going to make the higher at the appropriate time, even if they've already made their decision. I have no idea what that even means. I don't, I don't know why it matters whether you make the, decision, the uh, announcement now or two weeks from now. Is it possible that they're still waiting to talk to someone else? I don't know. Lane Lambert's still out there with the Islanders. Uh, there's some talk that the Coyotes might wait for him, although I'm not as certain that's going to happen now. But if Seattle has already made its decision, I, quite frankly, I don't understand why they would wait to make that call at this point. You know, this is an interesting process. I've, I've been on different relationships with the coaching carousel through my career. I've, I was lucky enough to go through the process when Rick Tockett was hired. John Chica let me be a part of the, the hockey side of those interviews. So I was actually in the interview room and I saw the process take place. And then I read the rumors going on in the media along with those interviews. And it was an interesting perspective to see what little actually is known outside of that room. And you've seen it with Gallant, you've seen it with Tockett, that you think it's going one direction, and then all of a sudden, Brad Larson's the head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets, a name that wasn't mentioned at all anywhere, and now he's the head coach. You just truly don't know. I, you know, I'm watching the, the Seattle very closely with the Rick Tockett, and in the last 24 hours, I've heard he's definitely got the job, and then later that evening, I hear he definitely doesn't. So honestly, I... I don't know. I don't know how this all is going to end. And I don't know how it's going to end in Arizona because the interesting thing I've seen throughout this process is how many people get involved with the interviews with these teams, you know, from advisors to scouts to assistant managers to, to, to owners. Like, there's a large layer of people that you have to get through mm-hmm. to get that coveted spot behind the bench. And I'm not sure that's the process here in Arizona right now, because I don't know who's all involved. They're so, they're so light in the management office right now with Brian DeCord leaving that I'm not sure who's all involved in that process. Craig, does it, does it make any sense? I mean, you mentioned Lambert in terms of a connection to the Coyotes. I think a lot of times logically you'll look and you'll say, okay, well, if they haven't hired a coach yet, some of the other names that were linked to them are available. Like they're not still coaching in the playoffs or tied to teams that are in it. So Lambert is the one that's still tied to a team that, I mean, they may win the Stanley Cup. They're obviously, they're not going to be done anytime soon. So logically, if you're just a fan connecting the dots, you would say, oh, okay, they, they must be at least very interested in him, but is that necessarily the case? Well, I, I think that they were. I, I, I know that they were at the start of this process, but it's. I guess it's some of it's a matter of how willing you're, how, how long you're willing to wait when you have so many other boxes that you need to check. And the Coyotes have a long off-season to-do list. I'm sure, they'd like to get a coach in place. I don't know what's going to happen this week. Now, if if the Islanders lose Game Five, if they go out quickly, maybe Lane Lambert still gets an interview. But if this process drags on, I. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they just moved on at that point and and made another hire. And, and I think we all know the names. Like Todd Nelson's 
very high on this list right now. I wouldn't be surprised if he was the higher. Um, Mike Van Ryan, we, we know, also got an interview. So we'll see where this process goes. But, yeah, it's it's interesting because, in, in one sense, the Coyotes really don't have any pressure from other teams. It's not like they're in competition with another team for a hire. So they, they could wait on Lane Lambert if they wanted. But, again, they have so many other things that they need to get done, uh, not to mention, uh, you know, the putting aside all the personnel decisions they have to make, with, with the draft, with the expansion draft, with free agency, with their own guys. They got to fill out this hockey op staff, as Steve just alluded to. They have a lot of positions to fill there as well. So there's a lot of work to be done. And the weeks go by pretty quickly when you have that much to do. And now you don't have the guy that originally was identifying all those candidates for you to hire in Brian DeCourt. Yeah, it is strange because really you talk about all the things they need to do. They've got to fill out the Tucson staff, the management staff in Tucson, um, all of the player issues that we've all read about um, in, in your articles, Craig, that, that they have to address. And, and right now it's Bill Armstrong addressing those all by himself. That is a tremendous task. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they made hires in the hockey ops department prior to a head coach and maybe that's that's part of the delay there i don't know there there is no rush they aren't competing but but again the draft is in a month like so you've yeah. got to start ramping some of these things up you've got to move some players if you're going to get draft picks you've got to have a, a room full of people to discuss these draft picks so it, it's it's an interesting interesting time here at the Coyotes that, that things are dragging out yeah we'll get back into the Coyotes a bit more but i think the uh, priorities right now are getting the coach and then planning for the expansion draft, the draft and free agency. That's, I think those, you know, like the assistant GM and the guy that runs Tucson and then the, the goalie development coach, maybe a strength and conditioning coach. I think actually all of that will come after that. Yeah, you're probably right. And I think you'll see that. I, I do believe that with, you know, Buffalo and Seattle ramping this up and, and July 1st is coming. And now you have to start getting Seattle's got to get ready for an expansion draft to, to pick players that are going to suit the coach that they're having behind the bench. I would expect both of those decisions to come um, by, by the end of this week. But again, I've been proven wrong <laughs> all playoffs long, all season long. So who knows how it's going to play out? Oh, we should point out, PD moved up into second, uh, sole possession of second place with our predictions here. Yeah, and I have Montreal Islanders, right, no in the final? Montreal no Islanders in the finals? Didn't I pick that early? We didn't Did you take yeah. No, I didn't <laughs> pick that. Who picked that? Who would have picked Nobody. Montreal Islanders? Good Lord. What is going uh, on? It is a weird year. Man, the, so the standings in our predictions, I know Craig wants me to update these every week. No, there. I, no. Yeah, because uh, making up for last year, right? When you yeah, I, I don't remember mentioning it much last year. So, yeah, I have eight points. Petey has six. Craig has five. We all, I believe, have Tampa and seven in this round. I know we didn't do a podcast, but we sent our uh, picks. We also all have Vegas and five, which seems unlikely since it's guaranteed to go at least six. But um, let's start with that Vegas series because that has been – Watching the games, there are times where it's just like, all right, you know, we're, we're midway through the third period and the shots are 20 to 13 and there's no scoring chances. But in terms of just the contrast between the two cities, between the two fan bases, the traditions of their teams, one dating back like four years and one dating back like 400 years, it feels like. Uh, Montreal carrying the torch for all of Canada and they're in the final four, so they do have a chance to win uh, this Stanley Cup. Um, and it's a best of three now. I mean, Montreal exceeded my expectations by beating Toronto, and then they swept Winnipeg. And they were about, what, a couple minutes away from going up 3-1 on Vegas last night? Yep. With all that, this has been a fun series. It has been a fun series, and and, and Carey Price is becoming more and more relevant as, as the playoffs go on here. He's had some incredible moments, but 
you mentioned something about scoring chances earlier. <laughs> it, it, it's been interesting, but I'm not sure the series has been so good. It hasn't been entertaining. Yeah, it really hasn't. It, it really hasn't been fun hockey to watch. Yeah, of all the hockey that we've watched over the last month in the playoffs, um, this isn't the one that you're dialed to to see great hockey. However, having said that, every game, honestly, it's, you have no idea what's going to happen. And you watch the mistakes. It's literally a puck bouncing over a stick changes this series. Like that's how these, how tight this series is and how valuable those scoring chances are. Um, and Montreal just doesn't quit. Like they just, they just keep motoring. Those little legs keep moving and they're on top of you. So I, I had no chance in this series against Vegas and here I'm wrong again. I know part of it's Carey Price. Absolutely without question. He's, he's playing some of the best hockey he's played in years. But you got to give it up to the, the the whole group. I mean, they're they're a team that's playing together, and they're not giving Vegas the time and space that they're accustomed to, and the space they've had throughout this season. Um, so honestly, with three games to go, Montreal can win this. It's crazy to think about. It's just crazy to think about the Canadians winning the cup. I, I, as they were the 18th seed when when the season ended, so they win the cup. They will. They will officially be the lowest seed, right, ever to win the cup because L.A. was previously, and they I don't think they finished 18th in the overall standing. Oh. It would be crazy. By the way, do you have to go You have to go back to Robin Leonard now, don't you? Because yeah, of one? But do you? Like, here's, we, I sat and thought about this. If what was your purpose, was it to give him a rest? Was it because of his bad puck play that screwed up the game oh. and you go, oh, let's, let's give him a little rest? I, I always think I know what you should do with goalies. I played goalie back in college, and so I think I have a little insight, and I know what – I have no idea. Is the right play to go with Leonard? I thought he was outstanding. He made huge saves at the right time. Um, you know, there might have been a, uh, a couple that he, he looked for the rebound a little longer than normal, but I thought he was outstanding. So you'd have to think they have to go back with him, but I, I don't know that the playoffs – Fleury's been unbelievable. Yeah, so, speaking of uh, being a couple minutes away from going up, though, Luke, I mean, if Flurry doesn't misplay that puck, Vegas is yeah. winning that game, and and we're talking maybe talking about an entirely different series at this yeah. point. But but if if Leonard goes back in, are are we going to see another Alan Walsh tweet, and, and maybe this one will be a bullet riddled, <laughs> yeah. a bullet riddled Mark Andre Flurry? Yeah, you know, I the, the, ironically, that's kind of where we are. It was a one. It was Laner's going into the bubble. It was Laner, like he was the man. And Flurry, the the agent, clearly thought he should have been. But the tandem helps deliver them farther in the playoffs. And I think that's what you're seeing here. You know, we've said it all season. It's a strange season. You're going to need two goalies. Goodness, if Price goes down in the Montreal net, that series is over. So it's they they do have two goalies. They're playing. I flip a coin. It's a good problem to have, but it's also, it's a very volatile situation when you have two goalies that are that good. Cause as the coach or the coaching staff, you do have to make sure you get it right. If it's me, I, I and I've never played goalie. I probably am going back with Laner here in, uh, in, in the next game, but um, because you still have time, like if he were to melt down, which I don't think he would, then you can go back to flurry. But I, I got to say on that play where he, where he basically just gave them the goal, Look, Flurry is a great guy. He's a Hall of Fame goalie in this league. He's no matter what happens this season, already has three Stanley Cup rings. He was a huge part of that. But man, there was a run in Pittsburgh where when you got to the playoffs, playoff Flurry would make plays like that a lot. And it was after they won their first cup. He was a big part of that. But there's a big reason Matt Murray was uh, was kept when uh, when Pittsburgh and some of that was salary cap with the expansion draft and everything. But Flurry in the playoffs was pretty bad there for a while for Pittsburgh. 
And then he's been outstanding in Vegas in the playoffs until that one play. So I don't think we've like seen the last of him in these playoffs, but as far as specifically the next game, I, how do you tell Robin Lehner he's not starting after what he just did? Yeah, I think you're, you know, Luke, you just summed it up right there. It's, it's, it's easier to go with Laner and then pull him if you have to, than put in Flurry. And if something goes wrong, now everybody's second guessing. So I, I bet, I bet you you called it there, Luke. I, I bet it's Robin Laner going in. Uh, how about this next series? Oh, by the way, Craig, did you hear that? Petey just said I called it. And That's... by the way, you mentioned it briefly. They're talking about coaching. The Montreal Canadiens are without their head coach. Yeah. Right. Again, how how big COVID, you know, rears its ugly head again in these playoffs where the head coach is sitting at home. And by the way, Luke Richardson, outstanding. And does his name start to come up as a head coaching candidate? Because his contract expires at the end of the year. Hmm. Food for thought. Montreal, just in general, switching coaches in the middle of the season when they were in a playoff spot. And I think a lot of us, myself certainly, thought, you know, fourth place in that division was about as good as they were going to do. I thought they were in like the four or five, maybe even six range. And they switch coaches when they're in a decent spot. And uh, what do I know? Because it's paying off. Although I do, I don't want to take away from them because as much as they are not real fun to watch, they are one of the best stories of these playoffs. Yeah. But I, I do wonder, like, if you put Montreal in the division with Vegas and you put Colorado in that Canadian division, I think Colorado's still play. You know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. there are some other teams that still would have made the Final Four. But either way, I mean, they've won two games in the series and they, Petey said it, you get down to a, the closer you get to a best of one, Anybody can win. They've gotten it down to a best of three, even though they wanted to be up 3-1 after last night. Best of three with Carey Price, it's basically a coin flip at this point, isn't it? Uh, the other series, the Islanders and the Lightning. You talk about a team that just won't go away. The Islanders are just there every year. And it's funny, we didn't get to mention this last time, uh, but you get down to the final four teams and it's, you know, you have all these like lower seeds from, you know, one through four in these divisions. But we do have three of the same final four teams from a year ago. So there is some consistency right now from Vegas and Tampa and the Islanders, specifically Tampa and the Islanders playing again. Craig, you have loved this series. I give all the credit in the world to the Islanders. I do not want to watch an Islanders Canadian Stanley Cup. Thank you. I am, I am fully on board with that as well. I do want to see Tampa advance, but you have to give it up for the Islanders because I, this is another team that, that doesn't have the, I mean, Matthew Barzal is an, an amazing player, but they don't have those franchise players that you think have to carry you to a cup. And yet here they are going toe to toe with Tampa. We've, we've talked before about this coaching staff and how good it is. And Lane Lambert being a, a coaching candidate, if he ever gets a chance because his team just keeps advancing and, and teams want to move on and hire their guys, but they've been a great story. And, and the, the coolest thing for me would be to watch a cup final at Nassau Coliseum in the final year of its hmm. NHL service. That would be a really cool moment. I think that's part of the story too. I think the Nassau Coliseum has taken on a life of its own in this series. And it, you look at their time playing in Brooklyn and that, that facility that was never meant for hockey that just didn't quite sure. feel right for, from the players to the staff, to the fans. It was just a bad fit, beautiful building. Don't want to diminish the building. It's a basketball building. It's not a hockey building. And Nassau Coliseum, that's a hockey building. I mean, that, that's as, that's as hockey as you can get. Um, and, and I think that is part of the story. You get that fan base involved. They become part of the team. And I think you feel it in the locker room. They feel it as a group. And I've said this on this show many times. When you believe and things are going well, it just feeds on itself. And that's the way this Islander team is playing. I, I, I you know, the last second save that, that you saw in the last game, 
that's what happens. 20 guys on board. Everybody's pulling the rope. Nobody's ahead of anybody else. We're all doing this together, and we're doing it with the fans. We're doing it with the city. We're doing it with the building, and it's just exciting to watch. And honestly, again, I said there's no chance against Tampa, but here we are. And, and, and they just keep rolling. So maybe this is the year of the Islanders. I, I don't know, but they sure are a lot funner to watch than the other series. Um, this is two really good hockey teams playing really good hockey right now. I could, I could handle the Islanders or the Canadians making the cup. I just don't know that I want to see them play each other for seven games. Uh, I was going to say, uh, before we move on, uh, the comparison between the two buildings and, uh, Barkley Center has come up on the Natty Hattie before, um, Largely because of the pickup truck that was parked at one end, where they should have. <laughs> I had thought that was your car. Yeah, there's, there's just you, you talk about that being a beautiful building, Petey. I, I have to beg to differ with you. <laughs> did here, I say right? beautiful? You did. Oh, which yeah. one, the Brooklyn? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't think that's a beautiful building. First of all, it starts you, and you remember all of this. It starts with the hard left turn that you have to make to get into the building in a bus on a street that's about the, the width of my bedroom. If you can get there. I've been on buses that couldn't find that street, and we drove around those blocks for 15, 20 minutes. That is true. It's miserable. Then you get on the rotating bus elevator, or, or the bus elevator that takes you down to the Lazy Susan uh, underneath the building. Uh, Luke, have you ever been there? You you, you go down this uh, huge elevator for a bus, and it's, it's moving at, at a glacial pace. You can literally count the cracks as you descend into the bowels of Barclay Center. You get out, you drive onto this tray that spins. So you, you, you can pull a car in, and then when you need to leave, they can spin it because there's not enough space down there for you to turn around and get the car out that way. And then you walk into the guts of this fairly new building, and you'd swear it was built in the 1800s because it just feels so old and decrepit in the bowels of it already. Yeah, and then- I know. Yeah, you know, I will say this, Luke. That that elevator ride, yeah. As and, and Craig is not doing this justice in a bus. The worst is when you're leaving and you're in that elevator and everybody's mad and the, all the team is on the bus and you have to be. If people can picture a pro sports bus, you think of all these athletes. Everything's fun, fun. After you lose, it is dead silence. And when you pull into this elevator, the bus has to turn its engine off. So it turns and it is quiet. And this elevator is just creaking along just to get up to road level and it is the most painful three minutes in sports waiting for that darkened quiet elevator to finally hit the street like oh thank god i can finally breathe again um it is not a beautiful building but at least it was new you look at the seats in that Coliseum. I used to go watch the warm-ups in the Coliseum, and I was afraid I'd stick to those seats when I was on the lines for that day. That's, uh, I know they replaced the seat cushions for the for the last couple of years here, yeah. but by far the worst setup underneath for staffs and teams and locker rooms. They did fix it this last uh, two seasons, so it's better. Right. But that's what the character of the building does, and I'm so fortunate I got the opportunity to be there because – the fans are on top of you. They're loud, and they're as one. So it's a fun place to be around. And it has a press box that is so close to the ice. The only thing that comes close is MSG when they built the bridge. Nothing else is that close. Everything else is nosebleed. NASA is really close to the ice. And and Barclays doesn't even have a press box for NHL because it's an NBA building. They figured everybody was going to be sitting courtside. So they had to stick stuff up in the stands. It, it's oh. so bizarre. Like I'll watch Heater calling a game with like fans around him. It's so bizarre to be in that building. And the other thing about NASA. Well, hold on. That's just Heater. Heater always has fans around him. <laughs> yeah, he does. That's true. That's true. 
NASA's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, you got to drive way out. And, and they've got the hotel, that old Marriott that's right next to it where the team stays. So it's a great setup for that. You can literally walk, if you want, across the parking lot to the arena. But it's, it's just when you look at that arena from the outside, you're like, oh, my God, this was built so long ago. But it's, it's still so cool. And the last thing of that, and I know we're spending too much time on Islander buildings, but as a staff member going to a game, I always looked at the cities that were easiest to get from the hotel to the rink. That's a very important piece of your day. You don't want to waste it in a cab or an Uber or getting lost. And that ride in Brooklyn, I, I remember we finally yelled at the cab driver, just let us out here because we drove around so long. We couldn't find the entrance. He didn't hit the right one-way streets. We're walking in our suits with the entire coaching staff through snowbanks trying to get to that back door. It is absolutely <laughs> the most – it's right plunked down in the middle. The footprint is so small for that building. There is no room at all to get around and navigate your way in. So that's miserable. And like you said, you can look out your hotel window at the Long Island Marriott and you can see the Coliseum. And you get to walk through the fans that are already there tailgating. You know what door to go in. It's unbelievably easy. So give me the Coliseum all day long over the Barclays Center. All day long. I'll take that building. And as we're seeing this playoffs, it has definitely become a part of it. What do you guys think? I put this out on Twitter the other day when Vegas and Montreal started. And my point was essentially Vegas is proof, and, and the Islanders would fall into this category too, that you don't have to wait around to win the lottery before you can build a good team. And immediately I was hit back with people like, yeah, they got the benefit of the NHL setting them up for success with the expansion draft. And that's fine if you want to take that angle on it. But what I'm trying to say is you have two teams here in the Final Four that and Montreal too, really. So you have three teams in the final four. I guess I'm just not as much of a believer in Montreal being able to do this consistently like Vegas and the Islanders have that have been built through essentially just a very balanced lineup. Like you can, you can win in the NHL without a true superstar. You don't have to get the number one pick and get McKinnon or Crosby or McDavid or Matthews when you look. And, and the reason I bring it up is because obviously we live in a city with a rebuilding team, and there are other rebuilding teams too around the league, that uh, maybe that's the, the model you should try and follow. You're not going to get an expansion draft, but if you can't have a superstar, you just can't have any weaknesses. That's what these teams are proving to me. It's like Vegas has a bunch of good players. They don't really have any weak spots on that lineup, but they also don't have like a true generational talent. Or I mean, they don't even have a player that they picked in their own drafts, I don't think, at this point. Yeah, it's an interesting point, and it, and, and it, it works probably better in small markets, right, where you can't afford all the uh, high high ticket items. Yeah, you, you look at the flip side of that with a with a team like Edmonton that has two very high end players, but they haven't filled in with the depth around them, or Toronto probably suffering from the from the same shortage of depth. It, it it's an interesting approach. I, I, what I wonder, Luke, is and maybe the Islanders are proving that you can do it with great coaching. Is it sustainable? Can you keep doing that sort of thing without those high end difference makers who can make up for those nights when your team just doesn't have it? They can they can change a game all by themselves rather than it having to be all in all the time for the team to have success. Well, it's it's definitely the balance teams, and you look at what the concern for me is, and I know as we talk about rebuilding here in Arizona and and um, what that first overall pick can do for you, man, it takes a long time. It, it takes so like Jack Eichel and Connor McDavid both. Oh, these this is it. They're going to change Buffalo. They're going to change Edmonton. Where are they? 
It's, it's, and not saying it's not going to happen. Connor McDavid may win three Stanley Cups in Edmonton. I don't know, but he hasn't done it yet. Jack Eichel has not turned things around in Buffalo. So that, and I know he wasn't first, he was second, but still, when? And so you look at these, these things take five, six, seven, ten years to get that first overall pick till you see the success. Oh boy, that's a long time to wait. So if you're waiting for this, hey, waiting for the ping pong ball to finally hit here in Arizona, that doesn't turn things around next season. No. And by, by no means are they getting a high draft pick this year. And you don't know when they're going to get that top five again, top three, let alone the number one pick. That's it. I know it's the way you win. I, I, you've seen it in Pittsburgh. You've seen it in Chicago where those draft picks are the guys that put you there. Absolutely, that's part of the recipe to get it done. But boy, can it take a long time. And it's disheartening because I've been in the middle of it going, oh, we, we, that year, the McDavid draft year, you're like, okay, this is finally it. We're going to get – and it didn't happen. And, and you're waiting again and you're rebuilding again. And th- those th- those years are tough. And even if your ping pong ball hits number one, there's no guarantee your team's going to be in the Stanley Cup finals in the next four years. As a matter of so fact, many, it probably won't be. There's so many other pieces to it. There's development. There's coaching. There's luck. There's – it's really hard. It's really hard to win in this league, and it's even harder to sustain that sort of success in this league. Well, maybe Buffalo and the Islanders are the two best examples then, because the Islanders flipped when they got Barry Trotz. And for whatever reason, Washington let him go. But, like, Buffalo has been waiting around for their guy, their savior to come through the draft. And, uh, yeah, Jack Eichel was the second pick, but he was supposed to be a generational talent as well. Buffalo just got the first pick again, so they're going to have it in this upcoming draft. They've picked first or second, it feels like, a thousand times. They're not getting any better. And I understand that they just mismanaged it there for a while. But I do think there is something to whether it's the Islanders model. I do think there's something to take from Vegas because, again, and people were up acting me and they're like, well, Marc-Andre Fleury was the number one overall pick or whatever. Not by Vegas, and that was 15 years ago. You know what I mean? Like It was certainly a benefit to be able to get him. I'm just saying that there's a blueprint there of find a way to get a good goalie. They don't tend to cost a lot in free agency or certainly in trades. You just got to pick right. Uh, get that goalie, get that coach. And then even guys like Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty, they made trades for those guys. Like they traded Nick Suzuki for Max Pacioretty and they traded a second round pick. And I don't even remember who for Mark Stone. It's people, people are acting like they went out and, and had McKinnon and Crosby and traded them for those players. Trade Oscar Lindbergh, Eric Brandstrom and a second round pick for Mark Stone. That was a really bad trade. Let's let's just say that because Mark okay. was a really good player even then. If you can get yeah, if you get lucky and can take advantage of another team like that, by all means do it, man. I have no earthly idea why they gave up on Mark Stone. But I mean, to again though, to reiterate, you know, people look and they're like, oh, you have all these pieces. What yeah. they turned into Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty was Nick Suzuki and a couple guys in a second round pick. I know that those trades don't come along all the time, but identify the team that's going to give you that guy. And even Mark Stone and Pacioretty, those are not like, it's not like you traded for Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid. You just traded for very, very good players. They got better in Vegas, I would say. Uh, mm-hmm. Even Pacioretty is having some of his best years in Vegas. And they didn't put any weak pieces around them. Yeah. That's the blueprint better than just wait for five years and hope you get the number one pick and hope he turns out to be great. Because even then, with McDavid, it's not working. And then, then there's talk that Vegas might be in on Jack Eichel now. Can you imagine them adding that piece to this? Because really, if you look at the one weakness for Vegas, it's up the middle. Middle ice. Yeah. Yeah. It it is. I mean, that is a weakness for their team, but they are in the final four seemingly every year unless, uh, unless there's a five minute major around Cody Eakin. Um, we've got an, 
other NHL news. Well, let's circle back to that. Let's hit some Coyote stuff, though, because some stuff has gone on. And, and I want to bring up Oliver Ekman Larson, who apparently is back on the trade block. I think we had all kind of heard rumblings that this might happen. But is it more likely this time around because the GM has been here for a year and, and Oliver maybe expands that trade list? Well, the, yeah, I mean, the, the list is expanded. Uh, there's not a specific list per se, but Oliver's camp is definitely open to more options. But does that mean it's going to get done? I don't know. When you, when you look at that contract, what's remaining six years, and now you've got another year body of evidence uh, that his, his play is definitely declining. So in a flat cap world, this is, this is not an easy trade to make. And if people are expecting the Coyotes to get some great return for Oliver Ekman Larson, they're thinking the wrong way about this. That's not what's going to happen here by and large. Like, I, maybe they'll pull some miracle, some rabbit out of the hat, but I don't see that happening unless somebody really believes that Ekman Larson can still get back to that level that we saw like five years ago now, or at least four years ago now. Um, that's a big salary, so you might have to take a similar salary back. You might find a player that's playing on a similar salary and say, okay, let's swap out. Maybe you can lose a little bit of term and, and chip away at it like that. Or you might have to retain salary and be paying Ekman Larson for a very long time to make this deal happen. But there's not a, I don't think there are many teams out there that are going to come and say, hey, we just want to give up great assets for Oliver Ekman Larson and take on that huge contract as well. That's just not the reality of the league right now. No, and I think that's what happened last last off season. We thought, oh, you know, he had a short list, and it was before this season where he didn't have his, you know, one of his career seasons, and it didn't get done because the Coyotes didn't feel they got the return that they needed to get rid of Oliver Ekman and the contract. I think they actually got by the contract. And I don't think you can this offseason. So to think that you're going to get a first round pick for Oliver Ekman Larson right now, man, that's, that's a tough sell. I think, uh, like I'm a huge Oliver Ekman Larson fan on and off the ice. I think he still has some great hockey left in him. I just think people are going to look at that contract and go, wow, flat cap. I got to spend that kind of money for six years. I might as well just develop my 21 year old that I have in the American hockey league right now to eat those minutes. And maybe at the, during that contract, he'll, he'll start to, to exceed his expectations. So I think you're going to see more of that. I'm not sure. The bigger problem is, is now it's two consecutive off seasons where you're trying to unload your captain, and if you can't find a home, how is that going to be in training camp? What's that locker room going to be like? And then say, hey, you know what? Maybe you're not our captain anymore. Now what's that room going to be like? And, oh, and by the way, we're going to have a head coach that's never been a head coach in the National Hockey League trying to manage all of this. I I, I don't know. I don't know if he can walk in that room again. So for his sake and the team's sake, I hope they can find a, a marriage and get him out of here. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know Oliver is, has been a lightning rod for criticism from Coyotes fans the last couple of years. And for a while there, I didn't think it was justified. I mean, he has not been playing his best hockey the last couple of years. There's just, there's no way around that. But I absolutely could see a scenario where he ends up on Boston on like their second pairing and is outstanding. You know what I mean? And that's, that's certainly, that's certainly a, 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 a possibility. And you don't manage your team based on how a guy might perform somewhere else. But I do feel like you're selling low right now. And that doesn't mean you can't trade him. But I, I don't know that I see the value if they have to trade him and retain a good chunk of his salary and get nothing back. You know what I mean? Like at a certain point, I like I hear what Petey's saying, it's going to get awkward if you keep trying to trade your captain and he keeps coming back. But if I'm trading him and I'm eating half the salary or whatever and I'm not getting anything in return, then 
am I just making a change for the sake of making a change? Yeah, I think the biggest reason they want to get rid of them, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Craig, because you, you probably know more. They want to get rid of that salary. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're trying to get rid of the, the money that they're tied up into for six years. So taking some of that money back, uh, although it might be what they need to do to get the deal done, is clearly not going to be their first option. Like, yeah. They'd rather get nothing in return and get rid of the contract than they would assume the contract and get some assets. Um, the biggest thing they need to get rid of is the money. Yep, I'd agree. Um, Liam Kirk, Craig, he, is, yeah. uh, he, has, he has made his arrival. Almost, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating story. And the, the counties can't even announce this officially because of those IH, IHF transfer rules. They can't announce until uh, July 28th. There's a mor- moratorium after, uh, I'm trying to remember, it was June, whatever the date was. There's this period where they can't announce it if they don't get him signed. I think it might have even been June 1st. Um, but he has agreed to terms for a three-year entry-level deal. He's going to play in Tucson next year. He's a project. Look, he, he, Liam Kirk's not coming over as a seventh-round draft pick from England, NHL-ready. And, and people who think that because he scored seven goals at the World Championship, that means he can step into an NHL lineup. No, you you need to do deeper analysis. There are holes in his game. He needs to get bigger, first of all. And that's true of a lot of young prospects, although you know he's going to be 22 soon, so he's – he should have filled out a little more. They need him to get they he, he needs to get on a training program over here with a, a a pro staff. He also has a lot of issues away from the puck. He's gonna have to work on a lot of his details. So I would I would still call him a project at this point, but the kid wants to play here so badly he will do anything that he can and he's done some impressive things. Still, that time for the goal-scoring lead at the World Championship, even in a watered-down World Championship, it's still notable. He did some things, probably enough to at least earn a look. And it's not like the Coyotes' prospect system, their prospect pool, is so deep and so loaded that they can't give away a contract to a guy who might have some potential. It's worth the risk. It's a very low risk at this point. Yeah, and it's a good story. People are excited about it. You know, it's fun to talk about, especially it's a kid. He's a good kid that works hard, and you want to see those kids succeed Absolutely. I mean, you want to have that Rudy moment where he tears up training camp and he gets a chance to be there opening night. I I just don't know if that's how the script gets written this season. Um, I think him playing in the American League is a fantastic um, reach for his career. Like where he expectations were when he was drafted to now to play in the American League would be fantastic for the kids. So I'm I'm excited for him. You know, fans, if, 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 Everybody can get in and see people at training camp, and they allow you know the red white scrimmage. You're going to get a chance to see Liam Kirk, so that's exciting. Um, good for him, and I, I think it's a good move by the Coyotes organization. I've been thinking about these global series that the NHL plays too, and it, it might be time to start lobbying Gary Bettman for a Coyotes game in London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, get it not going. Selfish Craig. reasons, of course. Get on no, that. No, not Craig. at all. Have have uh, Paul Bissonnette do the color too, since he played over there for a little bit. There you go. Uh, and and I look forward to seeing the uh, the Sheffield Steelers jerseys at uh, some of these Coyotes training camps uh, heading into the season. The Coyotes um, have a, like an English pipeline here. Then you talk about Bissonnette, you talk about Brendan Perlini being born over there. He played there <laughs> fourteen. Does anybody have a deeper English or British pipeline than the Coyotes? They have to be the favorite team over there at this point, right? Like, there's got to be like a Liverpool Coyotes fan club or something. If you're out there, I know we have a couple listeners from from uh, from over in England too. Feel free to tweet into the show. Um, let's stick with the Coyotes here. Craig put in the notes: Is it uh, is do the Coyotes need to tank? And so I think based off what I just said about Vegas and the Islanders and how they built their teams, you can already guess my answer. But I think we should have a a definition of what specifically 
tanking is because I'm fine trading pieces that would help you win now if you're getting legit pieces that you think can help you down the line and balance out your salary cap. You've got a new GM still that hasn't got to put his fingerprints on this team. So I'm fine if that's the thought. If you end up just as a sort of a side effect, losing more games this season as part of a rebuild. But like I just said, I especially here, I have no interest in the, well, we got to get the top pick, so let's be bad, because that doesn't work unless you are in Canada. Let's just be honest. Or Colorado. And I tell you what, if, if fans want to see tanking, go back to the, the, uh, the Eichel McDavid draft and look at the Arizona Coyotes and Buffalo Sabres rosters the last 20 games of that season. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I know I understand everybody's looking for that generational talent. And I see that, that where the seasons were headed already for both of those teams. But good grief, being in the coaches room and putting those names up on the board, you're like, what are we going to do today? Like it was so challenging, and and the disconnect between management and coaching during that last twenty games of that season, management didn't come down after games. Like it, it's a common thing to come down. Hey, a good game, or we think of this guy's. How did he play? And oh, this line could have done this or make some changes here. There was no coach management discussions after games that just did not exist because I you knew the motivation for those groups was so different. Management wanted to get the draft pick because that's their job. Coaches want to win because that's their job. And people are anybody who thinks that a coaching staff isn't in there trying to win because they're getting the draft pick hasn't been in that room. Because I tell you that Dave Tippett staff worked just as hard every single day trying to win with the staff that, or uh, excuse me, uh, the, the players that were less than the opponent on a nightly basis. And it hurt just as much. They were just as mad. Um, that's a management thing. That's not a coaching thing. And to be clear, Connor McDavid was at the top of that draft. There is no Connor McDavid at the top of next year's draft or the year after, probably not for the next 15, 20 years. And Jack Eichel was there. So you at least had the thought of, well, if we have the worst record and we don't win the lottery like Buffalo, you would drop and still get Eichel. Agreed. Well, I mean, I mean, there's probably not a Connor McDavid, but Shane Wright and Connor Bedard right now look like really high-end talents. They look like higher in talents than, than we've seen in a while. So, and, and those drafts, especially next year's, the 2022 draft, it looks really deep at the top too. So you can get some really impact players, at least right now. Again, we're talking projecting here. We're talking about kids and we can, we can get into the whole, the NHL should raise its draft age argument at, at a later date because they should. It's stupid that they're gambling this much money on, on kids that are going to do so much developing, unlike the other sports that draft them later in, in life. But well, hold on, hold on for a second, Craig. Can we agree that if the NHL ever does do that, it'll be the year the Coyotes have the number one overall pick yeah. and then have to take a guy that didn't get drafted? Yeah. yeah. But I, you know, the, the, if, when you talk to a, a lot of the experts who are analyzing those drafts, 22 and 23, there's a ton of depth at the top of them. Again, you're projecting. It's, it's a really inexact science, but it looks like these drafts are going to be better. And then you look at the impact, uh, you know, that scouting this year is going to have on next year's draft. It might push some more depth into that. I'm not saying you, you, you go for the number one pick because yeah, it's, it's really hard to get that, but they need some top end talent around what they have right now. When I look at this roster right now, I don't see a path forward toward anything more than oh, we're in contention for a playoff spot. Well, who cares? As Chris Peters said to me in that story I wrote recently, the worst place to be in pro sports is in the middle because there's just no chance to sustain success from there. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And I do think this draft coming up, I know the Coyotes don't have a first-round pick, but you have a couple second-rounders in the draft where nobody really got to play or scout. 
So you may be able to get a couple first round talents in that second round this year when we look back in two or three years. I think it's huge for them to draft well, not just in the first round. I don't disagree with you that it would be nice to have a top five pick in the next year or two, but I'm certainly like, like I keep saying, I, I'm not, I'm not going into a season looking at who's going to be the number one pick at the end of the season because you're not, you're not going to get them. This isn't the NFL. You know, the only, the only sport where it makes sense to me to tank is if you are an NFL team and you know, if you have the worst record, you get the first pick and you're 14 games into a 16 or now 17 game season. And it's just for a couple of weeks. I don't want to teach Clayton Keller and Connor Garland and Lawson Krause and Jacob Tickern how to lose for three years and just keep losing the draft lottery. But make no mistake for you to get to the point where you're making deep playoff runs. Your best players probably aren't on this team yet, with the possible exception of Chickren. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, okay, let's circle back to some NHL news here before we hit the uh, the questions. And some of the awards thrown out there, Rod Brindamore wins the Jack Adams, Alexander Barkov wins the Selkie, uh, Jacob Slavin wins the Lady Bing, and Craig has in the notes that Damian Cox disagrees, which then, in my mind, means he definitely should have won the Lady Bing. <laughs> Damian Cox is still disagreeing today. It's like a two-day run of calling all the voters out for voting for Jacob Slavin for Lady Bing. Like some, something like 76 or 78% of voters had him number one, by the way. A defenseman who had one penalty, and it was a puck-over-the-glass penalty. And and he's already – look, there are other things that factor into this as well, and I will still maintain that writers shouldn't even be voting on the Lady Bing. It should probably come from officials or players because we don't know who's gentlemanly on the ice. We're not on the ice with them. It's a silly award in the first place. I can't figure out why you get so worked up over the Lady Bing award of all things, though. I mean, he, he's saying that Connor McDavid should get it because he's getting bullied and he's not retaliating. Okay, there's there's an okay argument there, but – Connor McDavid also has some things in his uh, recent history that don't show that he's uh, necessarily gentlemanly. I mean, to, to make such a strong, impassioned argument that they got it so wrong, good God, man, let it go. It's, it's, he's a defenseman who committed one minor all year, and it's the freaking Lady Bang trophy. It's not that big a deal. Uh, and I... Uh... I don't even, not even, I know I can't. Name the last three Lady Bings or five? I have no idea. And for the argument you gave on McDavid, is, is that Connor Garland for Coyotes fans getting right. bullied? And he, like, throw him in there then. Like, I, I, I know the awards are great and the awards show is cool out of Las Vegas and all those things are great. Give me the MVP. Give me the Vesna. Great. The Con Smythe, I want to know who the best player was in the playoffs. Those things are the, the awards that I'm looking at. Lady Bing, great. Masterton, great. They, they are very deep meanings, but to your point, Craig, who's voting on it and why is it important? And, and I, I'm not taking away from the award and, and, and Slavin winning the award at all, but relax. Take it to, oh, congratulations. Good job. Way to go. That's it. And then move, move on. Oh. I, I, I don't understand, but I guess it's things that people worry about. First world not, problems. Not the sort of award you would expect to hear arguing over. And since exactly. Slavin won the Lady Bing, he can't argue back because that wouldn't mm-hmm. be gentlemanly. Damien Cox definitely would not win the Lady Bing of uh, hockey writers or exactly. people that cover hockey. Uh, and I would assume, I would assume Nathan McKinnon probably forfeited his chance when he underhanded his helmet at uh, Connor Garland's face earlier. I voted for Jacob Slavin, by the way, and I feel good about my. Well, of course, you did. As good as you can feel about the lady. <laughs> Throw your shoulder up, patting yourself on the back. Well, we have a new uh, we have a new guest on the show, Craig. I didn't tell you that Damian Cox is joining us on the Zoom call. <laughs> How great would that be? Let's go now. Oh, so this is he making the round so that every one of those writers that voted for Slavin can defend their pick? Because that's <laughs> yes. what he was asking on Twitter. Every, everyone needs to defend their pick. Really? Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Um, the Minnesota Wild, if you are excited about the future of this team, it's obviously it hinges on Kirill Kaprizov. I think a lot of other things for this team went right this year that aren't guaranteed to go right next year. Like, I don't think they're frauds or anything, but what was it? It was, uh, remember, remember Jamie Eisner, Craig? Uh, didn't he say this was his, uh, his number one candidate for nonlinear progression? I'm wondering if he's changing with the Montreal Canadiens going as deep as they are, but I, I think Minnesota is probably still in the top two. But either way, I mean, for them, if you if you're looking at Minnesota and say no, they're going to be better next year, or at least as good, and the year after, it hinges on Kaprizov, and there seems to be a little bit of a of a catch up right there, or a snag. Yeah, he's a restricted free agent, but he's a 10.2 C, which means he can't be offer sheeted. You know, he can't really he has no options other than playing in the KHL. So that's what his representation is using as leverage because the two sides want very different deals. Minnesota wants to sign into a long-term deal. They want to lock him up, eat up a bunch of those years of free agency. He wants a bridge deal so that he can explore free agency market when he's still in his prime in, in a few years. Neither side is budging right now. This is the only leverage he has. It feels like posturing. He, he, he finally made it over to the NHL and showed he could succeed on the biggest stage. I can't imagine him staying in the K, but – We'll see how this plays out. Yeah, it's it's hard, and it's it, any other player, I'd say, well, they're they're just using that as a as a ploy. But he's had success there. He's it's a hard league. If it's if it's a North American player, it's just posturing. Period. If it's a Canadian kid saying, well, I'm going to go over to the KHL, no chance is that a legitimate threat for playing in the NHL, in my opinion. This could happen. Like if it, it's that big a deal, it could happen. And I tell you. The travel, the hotels, the schedule, the fan base, the arenas, the facilities, they are not the same in the KHL as they are in the NHL. There is no comparison. There are some cities that do a fantastic job. I, I don't want to diminish the entire the league, but as a whole, it is much, much different than the National Hockey League. So he, the kid wants to play here. In my, my firm belief, he wants to play. I think he got treated really well in Minnesota. He got an incredible amount of ice time. He liked the accolades. Things went great. He wants to be here, but he wants to get paid. So it's going to be interesting because we talked about COVID and how it's changed the, the, the salary base to players, coaches, and everybody in between. That may affect how this deal gets done or doesn't get done. Minnesota needs this. They need to have this piece of their puzzle. I talked to people in the organization. Their window for winning the cup has not quite opened yet. Just about getting ready to. They need to lock that piece up so they can throw that window open and start making a, making a run at the cup. Yeah, they're not they're not making that run without Kaprizov, obviously. I mean, he was an absolute monster last year. And, and this is not one of those players where it's like, oh, we saw him play the Coyotes a lot, so we, we have a skewed view. He was just kind of a monster against everybody. And looking back, this was not necessarily an easy division when you have Colorado and Vegas in it, certainly. So, yeah, I mean, you don't typically see a guy step in and just run away with Rookie of the Year like he uh, he is going to do. Uh, last national story, Craig, this uh, story on The Athletic about the Blackhawks is um, – it's yeah. discouraging just across the board. It's just, it's, uh, I don't know. I'll let you take it away here on this one, but kind of looking back at potentially terrible stuff happening during their Stanley Cup runs. Yeah, really important, uh, reporting here from Rick Westhead of TSN. Just, uh, man, that, that, and it involves some key figures in the Blackhawks. Uh, two players made allegations of sexual assault by uh, former video coach Brad Aldrich. And per the reporting, former President John McDonough, current GM, current czar, as I call him, Stan Bowman, Vice President of Hockey Operations Al McIsaac, and sports psychologist James Gary all knew about it. 
We will see where this goes right now. It's allegations. There's a report filed with the Chicago Police Department, but this is a really bad look for the Blackhawks. Um, you know, uh, if you if you want to read a story, uh, Mark Lazarus and Scott Powers wrote a, a piece in The Athletic detailing how this could, you know, not only the, the allegations and all the details behind it, but how this could tarnish everything that the Blackhawks really accomplished when they won those three cups because this was during that period. And it's true. You can't divorce the two. I don't know if you take it away from the players, what they accomplished, but – my goodness, if, if this all proves to be true and you're the, the owner of the Blackhawks, Rocky Works at this point, you, you got to make some wholesale changes because this is a – you, you can't abide this stuff. It's disgusting. It's disgusting to hear that this sort of stuff might be going on inside uh, an NHL franchise. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not even sure how to comment. I'm, I'm, I'm sick by it. One because it happened, but I know some of the people involved in this, and it's it's really sad. And you don't ever want to get these type of accusations or stories that close to your doorstep. That you, that you feel like it's always somebody else. It's always another league, another sport, another industry. It's never that close. And when you when you hear it, you're you, it puts you into that world of disbelief. Like ah, this can't this can't be real, is it? Like that this really happens. And you're just physically sick about it, and and I, I feel bad for everybody involved here. There is no good way or good path out of this story. It's, it's, it's just very, very sad. And and I, you know, I I don't know the answers to any of these problems. Are way bigger than what I can handle. But the one thing I'll say, and I'll say this as a dad. If if you have a problem, any problem, whatever about anything. Talk to people. Just get out and talk to people. I've, I've seen, and this kind of ties into you know some mental health things that Luke Richardson um, preaches to. Just talk to people. Somebody out there wants to and will help. So I know that's not the, the what the story is about, um, but it just makes me think as a dad. If I could have got in there somewhere and got involved, just talk to people, and, and let's, let's hope this plays out. And and everybody can heal and move on, but it's a really, really, really sad story. Yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. And Craig, I'm, I'm sort of with you where I don't know that it necessarily diminishes what they did on the ice, what the actual players did on the ice, but that's also not really what it's about. You know what I mean? And and so, it, I mean, you're talking about something that goes so far beyond hockey and it, it just hits at such a terrible uh, a terrible way at the human level. And yeah, PD's right. Like you don't, you always expect that to be some distant far off story that, that never really hits, uh, home with, with anybody you would know or anybody within your community. So yeah, it's just, just, uh, I guess nothing necessarily proven yet, but still just generally disgusting across the board. Uh, let's, let's wrap up with some listener questions here. And, um, let's see. I haven't, this is going to be one of those weeks where I'm, I haven't gone through. And, uh, and screen these so these could be great or terrible. Uh, Ethan writes in any feel for potential teams interested in OEL Vancouver and Boston on the list again for discussion. I know we already talked about this a little bit, but are there other, other potential landing spots that have emerged yet this time around? I, I don't have a sense of that yet. I have to admit, um, I, I, you know, I started looking at some possibilities, but you, you just get into wild speculation at that point And, Right now, I think they're in the feeling out stage, sort of trying to figure out what what possibilities might even be out there. Um, again, Oliver hasn't given them a specific list or Kevin Epp hasn't given them a specific list of teams 
Um, but it is, it, it's on the Coyotes now to explore what's out there within reason. Oliver's not going to approve a trade to the Winnipeg Jets, for instance. So yeah. there are some teams that you can probably cross off the list. I'm not going to sit here and name them all, but I think people can probably guess some of the markets he wouldn't want to play in. And beyond the markets, too, you got to start looking at teams that have uh, a chance of yeah. being a playoff contender. I, I think if you're going to be looking at yourselves at the bottom of the standings, you're probably not going after an Oliver Ekman Larson right now because you're going to develop your own players. Um, to be ready at that time that you're ready to win. So it's got to be a team that's getting close or feels they're close. You know, Vancouver is a team, uh, they had a tough season this season, but they feel they have the pieces that they're close. So you could see that in Boston clearly as a team that their window is closing. They need to win now. So, again, it's a piece that they'll worry about three, four, five, six years on that contract later. They need to worry about next year. So I think those are the type of teams you're going to look at. A couple more sort of revolving around Oliver and also Darcy Kemper. Los Coyotes Steve writes in, who's more likely to be on the Arizona roster for game one next season, OEL or Kemper? And then Owen writes in, any scenarios that we can get a mid-first rounder for a Kemper and Kessel trade? So Kemper's in the discussion here, at least among the fan base. Yeah, I, I do think that they'll explore that. I mean, I think they'll listen if there are offers for Darcy Kemper. And I think, as I wrote recently, I, I think he got his mojo back a little bit at the World Championship and probably some restored some faith around the league in, in what he's capable of when he's healthy and on because he played at an elite level through the quarterfinals of the World Championship. He was one of the biggest reasons they won the gold medal. He was, he was fantastic. So I'm sure they'll listen there in, in terms of, Who's more likely? I have I have no idea how to measure that. I, I just don't know. Oliver's trade is obviously not going to be an easy one to execute, but I just can't speak on that right now. And I think the expectations have to change from the Coyotes' end uh, on both of those trades. I, I think they were looking at first-round draft picks last year. I think they were riding high off what Kemper did in the bubble, and they thought, oh, you know, we can d- demand a first-round pick. Same with Oliver. I don't think either gives you a first-round pick. Um, unfortunately, you can throw in Kessel, and the three of them combined probably won't get you a first-round pick right now. And that's just the reality of where the game is going. It's younger. It's faster. Um, so I, I don't know if that's going to be – you know, the, you're not going to get a first-round pick. Are there teams that are going to be seriously looking at Darcy Kemper and what he accomplished at the World Championships? Absolutely. There are teams that need goaltending. So his name will come up. It goes back to, you know, what it, what are you going to be able to get in return? Because the Coyotes still need to put goaltenders between the pipes for 82 games. And Darcy Kemper does give you a chance to win at a pretty decent dollar amount. You're going to have to replace him. Somebody's got to play. <clears throat> so if you can put him back in your net, you get a chance every night. So unless that return is something that they feel will help them year two, three, four from now, I don't know if they'll get that done. Or if if they they really do want to drop in the standings a bit, do you move Darcy Kemper for that reason and just sign a veteran goalie? And Yeah, maybe that's the strategy too. And again, that here, Craig, goes back full circle to everything we've talked about, to what's happening inside the hockey operations office. Bill Armstrong has no one to talk about these ideas with. He looks in a mirror, and we've had better discussion about it right now than he can have. And that's that's how those kind of things get done is you talk about them. And you somebody says, well, you know what, maybe not a great idea. Or, hey, let's explore this. You need that other voices in a room to explore these ideas. And I think it's imperative that, that, that he has it. Maybe Shane Doan is that person. I, I'm not familiar with the discussions or where his role is with the organization right now, but it's imperative that they have these type of discussions because these are major decisions that impact the, the organization for years to come. 
you know, who should have traded for Darcy Kemper was the Colorado Avalanche. And huh. I agree that a first round pick might be, at, you know, shooting for the moon now, but they should have been able to get that from Colorado last season because while Kemper was over there winning the, uh, the gold for Canada, Colorado was getting knocked out of the playoffs by Vegas when all they had to do was upgrade at goalie and big deal if it ends up being the 32nd pick in a draft after you just won the Stanley Cup. Instead, they just wasted a year of Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen and even Gabriel Landeskog and Kale McCarr's prime. Yeah, and as that series progressed, you watch Philip Grubar get worse and worse. His performance declined yes. throughout the series. And by, by, by no means is this the only inside hockey show that mentioned that, but we <laughs> mentioned that. Like this, this, this is, I, 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 I'm speechless when it comes to Joe Sackick. Everybody told him this. It, close friends. It was in the media. It, everybody brought this up. No, we're fine. If you hear that again this summer, how many years does, do they put the best team on the ice? in the league and not win. Uh, uh, is this his last opportunity, his last kick at the can? I think if he would have fired Jared Bednar, he bought himself two years. But by keeping Bednar in place, this is Joe Sackick's last chance. Like They need to get out of the second round, for goodness sakes. they got to be one of the Final Fours, if not win the Cup, with the talent they're putting out there every night. I, I cannot believe they did not address that issue, and they absolutely have to. And maybe that is Darcy Kemper. Well, it was Dubnik. Yeah, I, it was, it was, it's so weird because we talked about Sackett when we first started the show five years ago and there was a time there where he was kind of on the hot seat and then he made that Matthew Shane trade and he completely rebuilt this team. And I give him all the credit in the world because yes, Nathan McKinnon is a gift when you have the first pick, but all these other guys, he built, he built a really good roster and he's been an outstanding GM, uh, ever since then. But that was just such a like, that, that just feels like overvaluing what you have instead of, I mean, would you trade a cup? Or would you rather have a cup or would you rather have a late first round pick? I mean, that's, and I know it's not quite that cut and dry. You still have to go through Vegas and Tampa, but we saw it. And Craig, you called it with Grubauer throughout the entire season. And then we saw it. They didn't have another option. So when Grubauer had a bad game, it was like, well, got to leave him out there. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, Todd in Phoenix. And I, I don't know if he was the one that has gone to both these places. But his question is for Coach uh, Coach Peters. Wow, okay. That's very wow. professional. I, I don't know. How long can I use that term, Coach? Is that a lifetime uh, moniker now? I, I is think it, so. Is, is there a statute of limitations on that? I think you should uh, demand it at this point. I'm yeah. just saying. Just saying. You'll I'll take it. I like it. But just saying. We, Sorry. start doing that, Luke? We start calling him Coach Peters? Yes. <laughs> By the way, segue, my dad was Coach Peters. He coached Bemidji State University for over 40 years. So I grew up with a Coach Peters, and it's clearly not me. Oh, well, maybe this question's for your dad then. I don't know. It might, I just assumed there it was for Petey, but it might be for, for Coach Peters. Um, what is your favorite pizza place in the U.S. or Canada? It cannot be Nick's Pizza in Costa Mesa, which is the correct answer. Or Bleecker Street Pizza in New York City, which... Is that was that your pick, Craig? Is that why Todd went there? Yeah, he did okay. go there. Well, I thought he I, mentioned the place that he that you recommended as well that he visited. This, he's been to both. He's been to both I, those places. Ironically, this is an incredibly easy question because not only do I know the answer, I actually ate there within the last two weeks. Oh, and and I'll go a step farther. Food and Wine Magazine said this is one of the best places to get pizza in the entire state of Minnesota, my home state. They actually said we're one of the best podcasts, too, Food and Wine Magazine. (laughs) Well, okay, there there went the credibility there. But it's it's Dave's Pizza, Dave's Pizza in Bemidji, Minnesota, where where the entire – high school population would congregate after high school football games. One of my best friends at the time who actually won a bronze medal for curling 
in the Olympics. He bought the place when he was 28 and now is the proud owner of Dave's Pizza in Bemidji, Minnesota. The most expensive pie in the state, excuse me, in northern Minnesota, by the way. College kids aren't eating this pie. This this is expensive pie up in Bemidji. Um, Outstanding, thin crust, extra cheese, a little extra spicy sauce. Never changed the recipe. Best pizza I've ever had. I've had it shipped out to Arizona in, in freezer packs. So all of the listeners who are vacationing in Bemidji, Minnesota to take pictures with Paul and Babe and go, go fishing <laughs> on Lake Bemidji for walleye. All two of you. you stop at Dave's Pizza and say hi to my friend Pete. <laughs> I just want to make sure you appreciate the scope of what you just said, Petey. And I'm not, I'm not questioning your answer, but I believe Todd and Phoenix has gone to both the places we've recommended and neither one of them are in the U or in Arizona. So I'm assuming he's going to go to Dave's Pizza now and complete what would actually be the ultimate the natural hat trick. That would yeah. be unbelievable. Let, let, and if that does happen, make sure you tweet in, and, and I will make sure Pete gives you your, your official Dave's Pizza T-shirt, and we'll get your picture on the Dave's Pizza in Bemidji. I don't want to diminish Petey's story because I can't even touch that. That really should be the walk-off for the entire question. But with Bleecker Pizza, Bleecker Street Pizza, I want to make clear that, that that is really good convenience pizza. That's why I eat there. It happens to be on the way back to my buddy's place in the West Village, where I always stay when the Coyotes go to New York. And I like to walk to MSG from there. It's a, it's a healthy walk, but I always hit Bleecker Street Pizza either on the way out or on the way back. Craig, let's hope that, that, that someday I get an opportunity to go to Bleecker's. I swear I will go if I get an opportunity to travel to New York City again and walk to Madison Square Garden. I promise I will stop there. Okay. All right. I, and I will go, uh, certainly if I'm in Bemidji, I will. Once I learn how to pronounce it, I will definitely go to Dave's. You can't get there from here. Yeah. Um, ben Schroyer writes in, uh, of all the names who have interviewed for the Coyotes coaching position, which, can, which candidates do you see as the best fit? Again, that's more yeah, speculative. Yeah. I don't know what the roster is going to look like yet. So I, I, I don't, I don't, and that, that's also asking me to be an evaluator of the best coaching fit i'm not and, qualified to even answer that question that's so hard because fit for what like I, I tell you what if you get a we'll just say a mike babcock in here you know an experienced veteran nhl guy which isn't in the realm of possibility i'm just bringing up a name of an experienced coach the frustration level that this coach will have over the next two seasons would take that coach out of being a possible candidate. It's going to have to be a patient coach. It's going to have to be a player's coach. It's going to have to coach that can communicate with the players. And there's going to have to be an understanding with the communication with ownership and management that we might lose a few games. And I tell you what, that's a hard thing to step into for some coaches that are used to being around different types of organizations. So it's going to take a, a player's coach that that is okay to learn on the fly and build with the group that they have. Uh, a lot of these questions hinge on Oliver and what you could get for Oliver. Uh, and I feel like we've kind of already addressed that as, as much as I'm not sure they could get much for John Oliver. I'd like to have John Oliver though. <laughs> well, they had, they didn't specify. So yeah, I mean, John Oliver, would you trade Oliver Ekman Larson for John Oliver? I, I think I might actually. You can lose the contract. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, and get comedy in return. So I, I would take it. I think I don't know. John Oliver might make more though. I mean, you start <laughs> he to probably look at that, does. that contract. Um, let's go with loyal Sif. With Chikrin emerging as the guy for the future of the defense, does his previous injuries uh, not worry you guys? Having two knee surgeries on separate knees before the age of 24 seems very worrisome for the longevity of his career. It's a th- it's a thing, but, I mean, you kind of have to go with, with where they are now, and he obviously played 
last season very effectively. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's part of, it's part of his resume, unfortunately, through no fault of his own, but I, I, I don't find myself worrying about that. Yeah. I mean, you look at the advances in medical science that becomes uh, more and more of a routine surgery. Uh, and I look at when I look at the number of players that have used this guy and swear by him, Bill Knowles did a, a hell of a job with Jacob Chikrin and a bunch of other coyotes and helping them rehab. He's got some cutting edge methods that uh, not a lot of surgeons like because it, it puts their work at risk, but it really worked well for Jacob Chikrin. And I think if you hear him talk about Bill Knowles, he'd swear by the guy at this point. I don't know. Maybe the knee is never going to be what it was. Clearly it's not what he was given at birth, but it appears that the surgeries went well and it appears that there are no lasting issues from it. Yeah, and you look at uh, what he went through, and you talk about medical science and, and the training and the PT work has changed so much over the years. And y- you know that it's a topic of conversation in the medical room at the Arizona Coyotes, maybe not on a daily basis, but one, how he strengthens, strengthens those joints in the, in the gym and how they protect those joints when he's on the ice. Like he's, I'm sure, I don't, again, not speaking out of that I know, but I bet he's got knee braces on. I guarantee the strength and conditioning team is strengthening those joints and working on those muscles that protect those areas. So is it a concern? I mean, no more than it is for anybody else. He's probably better protected and better prepared because it is stronger and has better protection. Um, but he is going to be a big key piece moving forward for this team on and off the ice. Like he, he's going to be one of the next leaders of this club. It's funny, all these questions I'm looking at now all start with OEL possibly leaving or with OEL seemingly ending his time with the Coyotes. Uh, AZ Hockey Nut. Uh, it's kind of a long question, but essentially, of the current potential, uh, it's a weirdly written question, but who would get the C if OEL wasn't here or if it was taken away from OEL? I got to be honest, I don't know that the captain of the Coyotes is if, if Oliver moves on, I don't know if the captain of the Coyotes is currently on the roster. That's a, that's a bold statement, Cotton. Because yeah. you, you look at it and you go, over time, it's always a natural progression, like from Kachuk to, to Doan, Doan to OEL. Like you, you saw it building in the, in the room. And I, is it Jacob Chikrin? I, I don't know. I think he's a little too young for that, and they don't want to put that responsibility on him yet. Yeah, there's a lot. He needs to focus on his development and his getting better at his position. And that's – I don't know if people realize when you're the captain of a hockey team, it's not just you wear a C out on the ice. Like You you are responsible – for hurting the group, as it were, like you, you seriously, you plan dinners, you, you, you talk about, you represent the players in the coaches' room and in management meetings. You represent those players. There is a task, and there are jobs associated with being a captain, and it takes it takes takes some experience to to be that guy. And I, gosh, you, you really have to look through the group, and I'm not sure if they don't have that experienced guy. They go, oh, he's absolutely the next guy. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if they have it in the room right now. Uh, an AZ hockey nut does also say at the end of, uh, of, of his tweet, this question may repeat itself as the season draws closer. So yes, feel free to ask that question again. Once we have a better idea of the roster, I do like that question. I do kind of wonder, uh, if they re-sign Alex Goligoski, if he would be the guy for a year. I mean, you also could just not have a captain for a yeah, year. Yeah, you've seen that you often, have haven't you? Like, even yeah. the Coyotes went through that a year of A's the, before they handed it to OEL. I, uh, I, that would, that would be, m- I see that being more likely than them just throwing the C on somebody that they'd run with, you know, four A's that they rotate. I would see that being much more likely than than naming a captain prematurely. Jeffrey Travis writes in with OEL seemingly ending his time with the Yotes. Who do you think are active players that are most likely to join the Yotes Ring of Honor? 
I would think OEL is a lock with his numbers. Yandel would be the next closest for me. Thoughts? Yeah, I, I answered in the, the same question in my mailbags. So I'll just, oh. yeah, I do think OEL will end up there. 11 years of service. He owns a ton of records. He was one of four captains. I think he'll be there someday. Uh, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying he's even moving on. We don't know if that'll happen, but I, I see him there. Keith Yandel is probably the closest that I can think of to someone. It depends on where you cut that thing off. Are you talking about players who reached a, a truly elite status? And you can make the argument he was. I mean, he led the team in scoring for a couple seasons. He was really good. So maybe him. My dark horse, Radim Verbata. I knew you were going to oh. say that. Wow. <laughs> Off the board, I like it. And, and you know what? OEL to me is the easy choice. He, he does own or close to every record that the organization has. So I think he's a shoe-in at some point in his career. Like He's a long way from being done playing hockey. Keith Yandel, if they if they had a Mount Rushmore of the, the best guys to come through the locker room, his face is on it for sure. He's an unbelievable human being, great in the room, funny, knows when to lighten up the room, but he when he needs to tighten it up and hold players accountable, he is a great leader. I don't know if his time here in Arizona is going to be enough to put him up in the ring of honor. I think you need to have a bigger body of work with the organization. Um, Radim Fabat is interesting. Um, you know, he, he's a guy that did a little bit of everything for this team for a long time. It was just, I, I don't know. Craig, I'll have to go revisit his numbers because he's a guy we counted on games one through 82 all the time. Like he was the guy that always found a way to get it done. So, and again, another good person. And I know I took a lot of heat in the coaches. room. might always say, well, he, he's a good guy. And coach Rick talking to say, well, we don't care if he's a good guy. Is he a good player? And that would be the argument between me and coach talking on a frequent basis. Cause well, Petey said he's a good guy. So I guess we better give him in the lineup. <laughs> So, and that wasn't referring to redeem Vavada. Those are other players, and that would be the argument. He said that's not an argument to play a player that he's a good guy. Redeem Vavada played at a pretty high level for several. Yeah, it was. This was not a redeem Vavada argument. This was about another player for another time. What would you give for a thirty-five goal scorer now? Yeah, yeah, pretty much anything except chicken. Uh, Desert Doggies ninety six. At what point does a franchise like Edmonton move one of its franchise players for the sake of the other, if ever? Is having a deeper roster behind McDavid more valuable than a thin roster with McDavid and Dreisaitl? Uh, and then he throws out a trade for Dreisaitl from the Coyotes that Edmonton would never take. But it is an interesting question. Obviously, earlier in the show, I made the point that you want to build a team. I would like to build a team like Vegas or even the Islanders. But that is with the caveat of I don't get to have McDavid or Dreisaitl. So instead of chasing a ghost all the time, I'd rather just I'd rather just build a very deep, strong team. Edmonton may get there at some point where they would. I mean, I can't imagine trading McDavid, but Drysidle. Why would you trade? I don't know. That's a real tough spot for Edmonton. The thing is, I will say this: if you're going to trade somebody, maybe Toronto is a better example. If you're going to trade like a Mitch Marner, you better not mess that trade up, and you better get like three legit great pieces back. And it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to win a Mitch Marner trade, right, or a Leon Drysidle trade. I don't see them moving either one of those pieces. To me, that's not even the issue. The issue is all the other things that Edmonton did. They they drafted poorly. They made other bad personnel decisions around them when they were trying to fill in the pieces. That's what got them in their current predicament. But you want players like that at the top of your lineup. I don't think you move either one of those guys. You just you got to give Ken Holland a little more time to figure this out and see if he can. But I, I don't see either one of those guys going anywhere. Yeah, not tradable. They're going to be there. Yeah, and, and that's that's uh with Ken Holland too. I mean, he knew what he was taking over, right? You're 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 basically buying a house with a great foundation and no roof or walls. 
And so you're going to have to, he knew he was going to have to replace the roof and the walls, but he's got the foundation and a lot of teams don't have that foundation. So it's, that's not the, uh, the worst spot to be in. Um, that might be about it. Nonlinear donut ball delivery wrote in, uh, are the refs not calling penalties because they are instructed to put the whistles away? If so, why does the league that wants to market its stars tell us it's, tell its refs not to call penalties in the playoffs? If not, what can be done to hold the refs accountable? This is going to be addressed in the offseason. I, I have to believe that, whether it's going to be most likely behind closed doors where, where the media and, and fan base doesn't hear about it. <sighs> the game is so fast. Are they missing it because they're missing it? Is that I, I haven't, I don't believe there's a conspiracy theory that there's a mandate to not call penalties. I don't believe that, but I, it, the cross checking in the game, Montreal versus Vegas, I don't, I can't recall the players and I should. I wish I did. It was in the last 24 hours. I should know this, but referee standing there watching it faced into the glass. Like it's a penalty all season long, every day of the week. No penalty. High sticking on Perry. We're seeing every night there's two or three that you go, what just happened? But I don't have an answer other than. I, I, do, I cannot believe that the referees are sitting there going, well, we're not going to call penalties. I don't believe it. So are they just the game just that fast that now we need a referee in the press box? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't have an answer for it other than I think this playoffs more than any that I can ha- in recent memory that the officiating has been maybe a little subpar when it comes to penalties. Yeah. And we talked about this at, on a previous podcast, whether you need – sort of that person reviewing the game from, from the press box to say, hey, you missed this, I'm going to call it from the press box. I don't know. There, there, there are pluses and minuses to that, obviously, one being slowing down the game even more. But, man, when you see some of the egregious calls that have been missed in this postseason, it's really troubling. He hit it right there. You know, I, I'm, I'm fully – well, I try to be forgiving if it's like, hey, it's a fast game and the ref we just couldn't get in position in time, you know, all that stuff. But when the ref is just sitting there staring at it and you're watching the penalty, those are the most maddening ones. And I'm sure they're the most maddening ones for the coaches and the teams too, because it's like you're looking at it. So it's not a matter of you missed it because this is the fastest game on earth. That is truly a judgment call at that point. And uh, yeah, that's, that's frustrating. Um, got a cut. We got another question about Nolan Patrick. I mean, we kind of touched on that last week. It's not, uh, or last episode. I, I don't know that there's a whole lot of. He's his career has gotten off to a rocky start. I don't know if the Coyotes are necessarily all in on that right now. Yeah. And uh, last one, I'll wrap up with this from Cole. Realistically, what are the expectations for the Coyotes next season? I went with the simple but complicated question to wrap up the show. Yeah. Let me get back to you on that one when I see what they're <laughs> actually doing with this roster because I have no earthly idea. I do not think that the Coyote you're going to see moves that make the where, where the Kites are actively trying to become a more solid playoff team this offseason. I'll put it that way. I think we're, we're probably going to see the opposite direction, whether they can execute them in the current climate with a flat cap and all the teams having the restrictions they have. I don't know, but I think that's what they want to do. I think they want to take a couple steps back so that they can take more steps back uh, forward in the future. You look at a team that's going to go to a new division. You're going to go to the central division, more travel against different competition. 
still hasn't hired a coach yet, still looking at trading your number one goalie and your captain. There is so much up in the air right now for this organization. And we already talked about the limitations in the hockey operations department. Unless there is some sort of a plan that comes out of the next few weeks of meetings internally, whew, this could be a, a tough off season and it could be a tough year. Having said that, I've personally been there when we've said the same thing over the summer and you find a way and things just click and you get the right group and, and you it's us against the world and you, you get off to a good start. Anything can happen and anybody can beat anybody in this league. We've seen it every night and we're talking about Montreal and the Islanders in the finals. So anything can happen. I just think they're probably not quite ready yet. It is tough when you're talking about a new division a new coach and expansion drafts that we haven't even gotten into. We'll get into that uh, in, in, you know, future shows and yeah, potentially a new goalie too. And you haven't hit free agency or trades or anything. I will say if Darcy Kemper is back for another year, like PD said earlier, that keeps you in most games and it gives you a chance. And the core, I would assume of, you know, Chikrin and Dvorak and Keller and Schmaltz, I would say what, at least two of those guys are definitely back. Maybe all four. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, it's there's, this is, I wouldn't fault them if they decided, hey, let's rebuild for, you know, let's take a step back and, and like Petey said, take one step back to try and take three or four steps forward in the future because that tends to happen when you bring in a new GM. And Bill Armstrong is still a new GM in terms of getting to make moves with this team. Hey, one last thing before we go here. Um, I think somebody asked us how Jordan Gross was doing. I think you guys remember that. The yeah. big hit that Ryan Reeves put on him. Ryan Reeves, you know, who I've been told is a clean player um, hmm. and injured his knee. Some good news to report on that front. His brother told me that he's actually doing really well. He's back to normal um, and has been skating during the past few weeks. So really good news to hear on Jordan Gross. Uh, real quick, too, Coach East Jack, your Mount Rushmore of war movies. I don't even think I've seen four war movies. So I war think movies. Yeah. Saving Private Ryan, I mean, it's right Which up Which I haven't seen. But, Is uh, Forrest Gump a war movie? Can you throw that in there? Because it's got... Touches on it? Is that a thing or not? Can, I, can, can you guys no. come up with any movies that don't have Tom Hanks in them? Is that possible? Wow. <laughs> Just put him on the, the Mount Rush. War movies. War movies. Yeah. I mean, Saving Private Ryan's right up there for me. That That's a fantastic movie. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. we kind of we pieced together a small Mount Rushmore. With Forrest Gump and Saving Private Ryan. We should just do a Mount Rushmore of Tom Hanks movies because he's got about eight. Now that I can do. Yeah. That right, I can do. The war movies. Wow, that's tough. That's hard. Four, four Tom Hanks movies and just settle on four because he's made so many good movies. I don't think we could because I have never seen Castaway, and I'm sure one of you, if not both, will have that on there. How about The Green um, Mile? Oh, Big. I'm going to go big, go comedy. Big's a great movie, too. Big's yeah. solid. Yeah. He used to do comedy, and he was so good at that, too. I yeah. mean, I loved Splash when it came out. Yeah, I think you do have to have a comedy on there, one of the four. <laughs> Don't tell people that, Craig. Keep that to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? Got candy in it. Anything with John Candy, I'm watching. Mermaid movie. Yeah, put that on your list. Yeah. Didn't that movie have Eugene Levy in it, and he looks exactly the same then as he does now? Look at the, the SCTV cast there. It was great. Wow. All right, we'll end on that note. Uh, for Craig Morgan, for Steve Peters, I'm Luke Popinski. Thanks for listening to the Natural Hattrick Podcast.